This is Family Office Intel at Denton's, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actionable ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the Modern Family Office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Brian Adams. Brian, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. So Brian is the president and founder of Excelsior Capital. Uh, he runs the investment re- relations portion of that firm and capital market uh, capital markets arm of that firm. He's got over a decade of experience in the real estate private equity space. Uh, before Excelsior, he uh, co-founded uh, Pre and Properties, uh, institutional real estate private equity sponsor, back almost over ten years ago, and uh, and ran that company for that as well. He's also uh, served on the board of Serum Partners, which is a single family office investing across private and public asset classes since uh, two thousand and eight. He also sits on the investment committee for Solidus, an, an early stage venture capital firm. Uh, focused on investment opportunities in healthcare and technology. So let's get started. So Brian, let's let's do uh, first things first. How'd you get your start in the family office space? Like everything good in my life uh, through my wife. Um, so this uh, <laughs> background. I'm, uh, You're going to make sure she listens to this she podcast. She never listens to any of the things that I do, but you know, okay. she has people, right? So you never know. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm from upstate New York originally. I went to school in Connecticut where I met my wife and she's from Nashville and um, she is the oldest member of G2 of a, a family office based here in Nashville. Well, listen, you're a frequent commentator on the family office space. You do a lot of interesting work in there. Earlier this year, I, I think I mentioned to you, I, I really enjoyed the interview that you did with Tom Burroughs uh, from Family Wealth Report, kind of going around the world with the state of play of family offices. January 2022, a little bit different than April 2022, <laughs> um, to say the least. What's uh, What are some of the things that you're seeing out there um, uh, as, you're, as you're looking at family offices, uh, not just here in the U.S., but globally? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot going on. Um, I think the, the biggest trend line that we're seeing is um, – for the last 10 years since I've been involved in this in the space and go to these conferences and talking to people, a lot of talk about this coming demographic shift between baby boomers and millennials. But I'm actually seeing it play out in real time um, as of you know April of 2022. I'm 39. My wife's 39. Um, her father's 75, right? Actively... Um, talking about taking a real step back and actually acquiescing some control and oversight for the first time since I can remember, even though he's been talking about it for the last 10 years. And we've been preparing for this. And I think we're going to touch on it later. We transitioned to a multifamily office platform probably five years ago, pre-COVID, um, in anticipation of these things happening. And so now all of our quarterly board meetings, our state reviews both on a household and a kind of global enterprise level are all really, you know, contemplating these moves and changes. So I think this this wall of of demographic change that we've all been hearing about is actually, you know, taking pace, which which has massive ramifications for the family office ecosystem. Walk us through kind of that transition then from one family to multiple families. So it it, it was it a combination of the external factors that you're you're feeling in 
in this generational wealth transfer or is it just more specific to it's happening in your family and this is a, one of the ways that you thought about uh, continuing on? Yeah, I mean, obviously every family's different. We all know the the cliche, if you've met one family office, you've met one family office. For us, uh, it was really a function of, um, and I've heard this amongst other next gen members, um, a lot of these uh, organizations were started by first generation wealth creators, obviously, you know, typically males who, um, you know, they, they had great success in their business life um, and they wanted to create a, a family office for whatever the, the purpose was individually um, without really talking to anybody else in the family if that's also what they wanted. And so what I think you're seeing is as these first generation wealth creators move on to the next phase of their lives um, or you know pass on, they've left this infrastructure um, behind um, or G2 and G3 are realizing that they are going to be inheriting this infrastructure, this enterprise organizations that have been created, but they've never been asked if they wanted to participate. And so I think one of the factors you're seeing with this growth of the RIA multifamily office platform is obviously the cost. We're going to probably talk about that too, is becoming, um, you know, just uh, usurious in many ways. But um, there's also just, I think, this sentiment amongst G2 and G3 that I didn't necessarily ask for this. I don't want this as my full-time job. And what are some turnkey solutions here that we can go to to maintain the family uh, structure, but without having kind of all of the day-to-day responsibilities. So it's kind of like uh, for a, like a family business or something, bringing in an outside CEO or executive to run the family business instead of having a family member take it over. Right. So essentially for our family, we had managers in New York, Chicago, Nashville, uh, you know, running different parts of the portfolio. And it was, um, you know, really quite something. It took a lot of work to build. But once we started actively talking about who is going to manage the day-to-day moving forward, especially in our family where the culture is everybody has a day job, nobody works exclusively for the family partnership, um, and we have children and there's G3 running around, um, we realized pretty quickly that nobody within the lineal branch um, or non-lineal, frankly, wanted to take on that responsibility. And so we ran an RFP process um, to talk to, you know, RIAs, multifamily offices. We had some, some distinct uh, conditions placed on that search motivated by my wife and her sisters. Um, and so we came across a group that, you know, would be essentially more estate and tax oriented um, and really simplify the investment side because that's what my wife and her sisters wanted after participating in a lot of private offerings for a very long time with a lot of risk, a lot of work. Um, It wasn't the solution they wanted. And they wanted um, relationships that would be able to sustain over the next 10 or 20 years, right? The managers that my uh, father-in-law had built, um, those relationships were typically folks that were around his age, right? And so you walk into the room and you realize, man, everyone here is in their late 60s, early 70s. They're usually a bunch of white guys. You know, my wife and her sisters wanted 
uh, more peers and to have the management team reflect their own personal backgrounds, right? So more diversity and inclusion. And that was a big motivating factor for them. So it's not you guys creating a multifamily office from your existing single family office. It's actually going out to the market and saying, I want to look for a solution that that makes sense for us. Correct. Yeah. We, we went to existing platforms that we knew about. And uh, it's interesting, once you kind of put some of the um, factors that we had together, they're really a paucity of options in the market, which I, I thought was fascinating. I mean, obviously, I knew some of these groups, but when you actually say, hey, I want somebody in my backyard, I want it to be a partnership model. So, you know, we have a continuity of ownership. We want it to be holistic, right? More of a financial planning type situation with trust and estate work as well as the, as well as the investment side. Um, you know, they're, they're really, and we didn't want to go to a wirehouse uh, for a whole host of reasons. And, and so when you put all that together, there were really only, you know, three, maybe four options in middle Tennessee, which I, I just thought was fascinating considering the growth that we've had here and the number of families moving here with no state income tax and the very flexible trust laws that we have in place. Well, yeah, that, I think that's interesting in, in terms of how you came up with the categories that are important to you. Are there things that came up consistently? Um, I, I think we always talk about what's positive, right? Of check the box here. You know, when you looked at it, it was something that you and your family were, were happy with. What are some of those areas that maybe were potential pitfalls that you guys avoided as you were making that selection? Yeah. Um, Problems that we've had in the past would be uh, singular ownership structures uh, where, you know, there wasn't a very good deep bench. Um, sort of a key person risk. Right. I mean, and key man insurance and, and you know, uh, put sale agreements or, or buy sell agreements, you know, they're fine operationally. But when it comes down to the management team that you're working with day to day and it's just really one person, those things are, are really irrelevant in our opinion. So we, we definitely wanted an organization that had a true partnership structure with partners that were in their 30s, that were in their 40s, that we felt very confident would be there for the next 20, 30 years. That was a really big um, factor for the family. And again, my wife and her sisters did not want to walk into a room with just a bunch of, of, of white men in it. And that was a big... Um, driving uh, factor for them as well. Thank you for for sharing that because that's a, you know, that's a very intimate process of being able to figure out what's there and and um, and what works for you guys. Uh, if you could share one little tidbit of anything that you think of families that are trying to make that decision if they're going to a third party to kind of make that transition or or pick a multifamily office solution for themselves, what's one thing that you would recommend to them? Uh, other than the things that we had, had mentioned about potential issues, yeah, um, I would I would definitely focus on on the, the the culture of the firm, right? Making sure you're asking for referrals, references, and understanding the the strategy underpinning the firm. And I would really ask what the DNA of the firm is, right? If it's a spin out from a wirehouse. That's going to be very different if it's a lift out from an endowment, uh, which is kind of the group that we went to um, has, because that that DNA and that background will imprint moving forward, in my opinion, and it will impact 
kind of your experience. Um, and then a huge part, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot from other families and, and groups is the, the technology piece, right? You know, are they utilizing and leveraging best in class technology, both from an investor relations and reporting standpoint, but also cybersecurity? Um, it's become more and more of an issue for us as the family expands, you know, geographically. And we now have a lot of people kind of spread out um, across the states in various stages of development professionally. Being able to have that 24-7 communication, I think, is, is hugely important. And think really hard about what your experience will be because the investments are all going to be pretty similar, honestly. I mean, access to alternatives is going to be a big talking point for a lot of groups. That wasn't a huge driver for us considering what we'd experienced the last 10, 20 years. But I would really kind of hone down, hey, what are the expectations here daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually um, in terms of reporting, communication, transparency, et cetera? It's interesting to see the, how investments is like second to everything else um, in kind of your decision making. And I don't, I don't think you're alone on, on some of those things, but it also is a, you know, a personal preference depending on how you guys are looking at them. Yeah. I, I, in my experience, it's the qualitative issues that blow families up or allow them to be successful. The quantitative ones, right? The investments and the professionals you surround yourself with typically aren't the biggest problems. And it, it's kind of reversed because the value proposition for all of these groups is typically alternatives and access and and the private deals. But and I think that obviously is compelling for a lot of groups. But as you get bigger and more mature with your family in terms of second, third, fourth generation, um I think, frankly, it, it's it's more about are they going to be able to facilitate you, you know, as a family culture moving forward, and are you aligned together with what you both want to achieve? Because it's just hard, right? I mean, the investments you're going to have really good advice, and you're going to have to take some risks there. But um, if you can't develop that trust with your um, with your investment professionals, it just makes everything a lot harder. It's interesting. Would you ever, uh, knowing what you know now, would you ever maybe split those roles and, and work with a group that doesn't do investments uh, and then have an administrative type of multifamily office solution? Or do you see value in, in having all everything all in one house and, and things? And I, I know that's a very hypothetical question, but you know, you've looked at all these models. I'd just be curious to get your thoughts of somebody who's, who's actually implemented it. I think it's better to have it under one roof. At least, you know, speaking to our family and in our situation, um, the the challenge we had in the past was when you have multiple investment and uh, financial professionals who aren't all in the same firm. It's just really hard to make sure that the right hand knows what the left hand is doing. And a lot of the quarterly board meetings, a lot of the time we spend on the weekly meetings, we're just communicating with all these various groups. And so, having one holistic um, relationship, I think is just more, much more efficient. So I, I would definitely advocate, I mean, and everyone's different, right? But at least for us, I think it made a lot of sense to have it under one house. So the house is growing, uh, you're getting more generations in it. Uh, and, uh, th things are, are changing there for you. How do you work uh, and how has your family been working across the three generations? I don't think there's four unless I'm mistaken, but the three generations to kind of help them grow and and 
you know, feel some of that empowerment as they're as they're coming up into uh, the next phase of their, um, you know, their professional lives. It's challenged, right? And and you hear this term thrown around a lot, you know, encouraging entrepreneurship with the next generation. The way that we have historically had this conversation is, and it, it reflects my father's father-in-law's Manhattan roots. It's very blunt. If you take a look at the numbers, you've got a corpus of assets, right? You've got a bucket of capital. You're trying to sustain a, a quality of life across multiple generations in terms of time horizon. If you kind of peg inflation at 3%, which has been running a lot higher than that lately, but call it on average 3%, your spend rate is probably 4 maybe 5%. And you've got the exponential growth of your family. You need to be clipping north of 10% annual returns, net of fees and after taxes. It's just really challenging to maintain that of the long haul, right? I mean, you look at talented fund managers um, who have unbelievable uh, teams behind them. They have trouble doing that, right? In addition to that, you're running a small business. I think it's like 85% of small businesses in America fail within three years. So you've got this investment thesis, which is really challenging to execute on. You're dealing with uh, families who are um, schizophrenic uh, at, at best, maybe, and very hard to, to to keep track of over multiple generations. Diverse diverse in personalities. Right. Sure. However you want to kind of put it. And then you're also running a small business, which is just a challenging thing, right? So you all that put together, you need wealth creation in every generation if you're really going to try to maintain this quality of life long term. And so the best thing I think you can do is put whatever resources you have, be it financial capital, uh, human capital, et cetera, into that next generation to make sure that you're encouraging them to be entrepreneurial, to maintain that legacy. That's, I think, the number one way that you can be successful. So how do you actually do it? Is it through something like a family bank? Is it something like uh, in- encouraging people to take risks or explore different areas? Not everyone is an entrepreneur in the most purest of sense, uh, but it, w- where are some areas that you've seen families been, uh, do well, or or maybe you can reflect on some of your experiences? Yeah, it's, it's not easy, right? Um, I, I think the best thing that that we've done is um, demonstrate to the family in very concrete terms that the family partnership, the the office is there to allow them to take risk, right? So for us, it's be of service or take risk. We have a lot of folks in the healthcare space who, um, you know, are doing work in the community uh, and education as well, which, you know, is laudable um, and admirable. And we really encourage that. And then we've had people who have gone out like myself and tried to start businesses, but not just saying like, we're here for you, actually setting up structures, be they distributions, dividends, family living scenarios um, where you can actually allow them to execute on those aspirations, I think is the biggest thing that we've done really well. Um, it can be hard, especially as a non-lineal descendant, if you're a, an outlaw, when you see that this first generation, you know, patriarch or matriarch just had enormous success, right? Like 100x type return on a venture. 
and it can be really intimidating. And so I think being very open and transparent about what qualifies as success is also really helpful there just to maintain that perspective. I, I think you make a really good point about the kind of setting the benchmarks and, and, and put marking the goalposts for, for what is there and what's expected. Um, have you seen any of those goalposts move in your situation or, or elsewhere? Is it kind of a uh, um, steady state? I think they're always moving. And, um, you know, the problem with being a member of um, a really successful family that's experienced that type of return is, um, you know, they're going to keep pushing because they've seen what it looks like on the other end. And so um, you, you can be a, a bit of victim of your own success, uh, especially when you're trying to benchmark to somebody that's just had unbelievable um type of, of returns and, and story with their own background. So yeah, defining success, I think is a really big one. And again, going back to what I commented on earlier, just making sure that it's not just about the money, right? I think money has energy that is attributed to it by the culture of the family that is, you know, the stored of it for the time being. And it can be for good or it can be for evil. And you need to make sure that, you know, the energy that you're imparting into it through your culture, through your communication um, is really important. You have to be mindful of it because it will, I think, impact kind of the whole vibe of the family in many ways. But you said culture is a lot. And you've said culture a few times uh, during our conversation. How, how do you instill and kind of develop culture in a family, especially when you're uh, you have different roles in the family, inside, outsider, quasi-insider. What, what does that look like? How have you seen families do that well? And uh, if you feel comfortable enough to give us some insight on how, it, how you guys have looked at it. Shared experiences, for sure. Um, you know, getting outside of the day-to-day grind, which can be really difficult for a family of professionals who are type A personalities, but going into a neutral site um, with a third party facilitator and having these type of open conversations and having shared experiences and memories. And especially what when I talk to my children, you know, we're obviously extremely fortunate, um, but we're, we're much more thinking and talking about how can we have these um, experiences and memories and less about the stuff, right? Because the stuff all goes away and, um, you know, long-term, I don't think the materialistic approach um, is very, you know, functional. And, you know, I've been listening to the, th- the Thin Green Line by Paul Sullivan recently, and he talks a lot about how, you know, just because you have access to this type of money, it doesn't mean that you can't be a miserable person. Right. And so where do you derive your own personal value and, and how do you kind of have your own self-esteem and identity outside of the, the money? Because I know personally when I've put I've stored a lot of value into certain benchmarks that I thought were important, once you hit those moments, it can be pretty dark because you realize that nothing has fundamentally changed just because you have more AUM or more square footage or XYZ. There needs to be a lot more there, in my opinion, to 
to maintain over the long term. Sort of a what's next type of thing. The hedonic treadmill is a real thing, right? I mean, you get the house, then you want the beach house, then you want the plane, and then you want XYZ. There is no end to it. Um, And that can be a really scary realization to make when you're in your 40s or your 50s, I think, for a lot of people. I think that's a good point, and Paul, Paul's a very smart guy, and that is a it's a great book that he that he has uh, on that, and it's provides some really good examples around that in terms of satisfaction um, for that, and I can I can imagine um, some of those conversations and, and trying to go through that. And when you go through the shared experiences, what do those look like? I mean, is it just getting to a destination location? Is it philanthropy? Is it doing some sort of service work together or, or, or you know, f- either for your family or other families that, you, that you've gotten to know. I'd be curious to see what, what you've seen has been an effective shared experience. I think the consistency on the family retreat or reunion setup is really good practice. Um, same time of year, the location can change maybe, but just having that expectation of, hey, the second January, the second week of January, we always go here or we always do something. And don't be cheap about it. Like pay for a really good experience, pay for first class experience because you're going to get really good attendance if you do so um, and make it easy for families, right? So childcare, transportation, those things, they, they, they seem kind of silly, small uh, line items, but for a lot of households- it, They add up. Yeah. I mean, and not every household has the same uh, abilities, right? Uh, once you get down to a family- level. So those things really do make a huge difference. Um, and then, you know, my wife, she runs our family foundation. She's the head of public purpose learning for uh, a private all girls school here in Nashville. And so on a household level, my boys are nine and six, but we're trying once a quarter to do a service learning type um, experience or, or timeshare just to impress upon them that you know, it shouldn't just be about stroking a check and it doesn't have to be this huge starting your own nonprofit, right? You can give an hour on a Saturday and make a difference and just have that perspective of, you know, understanding um, how fortunate your situation is, you know, compared to a lot of the rest of the world. Um, And I, you know, I encourage people all the time to kind of Google like average household income in your county, average household income in your state, average net worth, you know, all the data is there. I think oftentimes when we live in this world and speak in these communities, our, our sense of um, relativity is, is completely skewed and it can be really, really challenging to pull yourself out of it. So I found those to be some kind of helpful things that we've done. Certainly a humbling experience when, you, when you're looking at that. And I, I, I like your, your points about you know, it doesn't have to be something grandiose, but it has to be regular and sort of that repetition instead of uh, a giant thing, and then and then it goes away. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the goal is to to just have them be good community members, right? And that means you know, working hard, being good people, and being of service. Those things can all. It, it, it's it's not going to be the same proportionally at every stage of your life, right? I'm a big believer in the seasonality of life where you're going through these chapters where you're working really hard, you're building a family or 
you know, you're at the, at the tail end of it one way or the other, and you can kind of mix up the proportions, but those three things should be underpinning kind of how you set up your daily life. Yeah, I think Shakespeare would have some fun with your argument there um, around the different seasons and stages of of that. So now you've kind of looked at uh, next gen within your family and, and others. What about institutionalizing um, a family office for the next gen? Right, your children, uh, you know, are growing up. Uh, given your age, I wouldn't you know, say that they're probably under 20 years old and they're kind of and maybe similar for the different family members that are, are part of your family unit. What does that look like when you're trying to talk to teenagers and, and younger children around these types of issues? Uh, when is too young? How to approach it when they're young? And then have you guys thought about what that would look like um, as they mature and do different things um, and, and become their own adults? Probably the most difficult question to answer within the next gen community today. And you have huge variability in terms of responses, which I think is fair given family um, individuality. With our family, you join the um, the family foundation board at 16 and you help make uh, allocations annually to various 501c3s that we're working with. And you go through that kind of process. Um and 18, you, you join the board uh, as a shareholder. And, and so that's how we've set things up. Frankly, my wife and I have, have not figured out when we're going to have the talk with our children. I mean, my nine-year-old, pretty sharp little dude, um, he knows that, <laughs> you know, we're not like every other family that he knows necessarily. Um, and so... There are some conversations and I think like most things, you know, we don't give kids enough credit. Um, and so we just try to be very open and transparent with him when he asks certain things or, or says certain things about our situation. Um, but we have not gone so far as figuring out when we're going to kind of sit him down and talk through exactly what's going on. I think a lesson we learned, my wife, um, she had that conversation when she was 14 and it didn't really go well. Um, she had a really poor reaction. So it's it, this, that experience will color how we work with our kids for sure. And then, you know, the flip side is I didn't have a full appreciation until we were doing the, the antenuptial negotiations and they had to make the full disclosures. I was given kind of no ballpark or reference points or, or nobody had that conversation with me until I just received the documents, took a look at everything. And I was like, what is, the hell is this? Um, so I certainly don't want that to be anyone's experience either. So there has to be a middle ground there. And there's that pesky thing called the internet that, uh, that doesn't help uh, when, when people can, uh, when your kids can I, uh, do, do a little bit of, Searching it up, as they like to say. And like most things in this world, which, you know, especially financial services, I don't understand this mentality, but there are like really good professionals that do this and they know what they're doing. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, people are cool paying, you know, fees and um, et cetera to hedge fund managers, but not to people who are going to help them have a functional human family. So I'm a big believer in bringing in you know, legitimate third-party 
service providers in these various aspects of the of the world to help kind of work through all these things. I think you make a good point. And I think part of it is also knowing who to call, right? It's that there's a, there's a, some some standardization in different parts of the family office world. There's the housekeeping seal of approval, depending on who you think is the housekeeping seal of approval. But certainly on some of the softer issues that you mentioned, it's uh, it can be a challenge. And I don't think you guys are the only ones that think of that um, around those those different frameworks. But there's certainly some good work out there being done by like the Ultra Net Worth Institute and other things like that to try to standardize other areas. But um, what would you recommend, given you know that uh, that observation? What would you recommend to families that are trying to pick service providers on all different areas um, to try to find that uh, diamond in the rough? Yeah, I've become a huge believer in affinity networks and peer to peer learning mechanisms. So um, <clears throat> I'm probably a member of too many of these things, but you know uh, we're members of IPI Campton Institute for Private Investors, uh, which is a partner with Campton, which is a global family office um, networking and educational organization that just does tremendous work. Um, a member of uh, YPO, which has a you know a family office group internally. That's how I connected with with you all through through some of your relationships with YPO. And uh, CFOF, Southeastern Family Office Forum, um, which is a, a little bit of a smaller group, historically been in this part of the world, although it is expanding geographically uh, to include kind of the whole US. Um, these organizations, whatever one you join, um, go to the conferences, go to the dinners, go to the breakfasts, you know, meet people and talk to them in a... Um, in a safe harbor type environment and ask for help because there are people that have been through these things. They've stepped in that pothole. They've done it the wrong way. Like I could tell you how not to do the prenup conversation with your son-in-law. I've done it twice with my brothers-in-law. I could tell you how not to do it. Might not be able to tell you how to do it, but these resources are there and available. So definitely encourage people to, to go and attend, join the organizations, join the groups, get your kids to come get your significant others to come because that's real where the real magic happens in my opinion is the connections and the networking and the experience share for sure. Yeah, no, I think um, the, the ability to uh, have that local network and, and leverage off of that is, is very interesting. And I, it's, it's certainly uh, been helpful on in, in a number of ways for, for, for families and, and for, for professionals and as well. To your point, you know, the resources are much more accessible now. I mean, your podcast, books, um, online events. I know um, what Ron Diamond is doing out in Stanford. I mean, there's just some really good stuff happening with Tom and his group, their publications, uh, Knight Frank. Um, you don't have to necessarily go travel halfway across the world to to attend the conferences per se. I think it's important to do those in-person things, but all this is much more accessible now with with social media and the online community. And so I just encourage people to, to learn and you can do so in a safe environment where you're not just getting pitched by vendors the whole time. Um, but it's all out there. You just need to spend a little bit of time working on and figure out who's real in the space. All right. Last question, Brian, your one lesson learned something you would wish you'd known back when you got started that you know today. 
in this space specifically? Your journey is going to be your own. And I would really be careful not to define your success in the context of what other members of your family have done or not done. So defining it in your own way. Yeah, because the, you know, uh, comparison is the thief of joy is a very real thing. Um, and if you spend your life looking over your shoulder and try to keep up the Joneses in whatever form or fashion that might be for you, um, it's no way to live. Listen, Brian, I, I think that was that was fantastic. I really appreciate um, you, you you joining us today. And thanks for everyone for listening in today. If you'd like to get in touch with Brian, Brian, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you? Yeah, and I appreciate you having me. You, this is an awesome show. I, I track it. You have great people on, so I'm just honored to be you know part of the roster. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. If you just kind of look me up, Brian Adams, Excelsior Capital, shoot me a note, shoot me a message. I'm happy to, to call or help talk. Um, anything I can do um, is probably the best way for, for people to get in touch with me. Perfect. And then uh, Brian also has a, a podcast called Colloquial. Colloquium. Colloquium. Uh, you can find that on uh, on Apple, and I see it on Spotify as well. Uh, otherwise, if you'd like to get in touch with uh, Brian or any of our other guests, give us uh, drop us a line at familyoffice at dentons.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, are so inclined, subscribe to the channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way that you can show your support to sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our research and solutions in the family office space. Check out our website. That is uh, dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone. Bye.